0: You're listening to Allen, on Public Radio. 20, August 1931, by Harl Vincent. The Moonweed, Part 1. Hobart Madison pursed his lips in a whistle of incredulous surprise as he regarded the object that lay in the palm of his hand. An ordinary pebble, it seemed to be but a pebble in which a strange fire smouldered and showed itself here and there through the dull surface. Would you mind repeating what you just said, Van? he asked. You heard me the first time. I said that that's a diamond and that it came from the moon. Karl van der Venter glared at his friend in resentment of his doubting tone. Mean to tell me you've been there? To the moon? Certainly not. I'm not a Jules Verne adventurer. But I'm telling you that stone is a diamond of the first water, and that it came from the moon. Weighs over a hundred carats, too. You can have it appraised yourself if you think I'm kidding you." Barton Madison laughed. "'Don't get sore, Van,' he said. "'I'm not doubting your word. But, Lord, man, the thing's so incredible! It takes a little time to soak in. And you say there are more?' "'Sure. This is the largest of five I've found so far.' "'And there's other stuff, too. Wait till you see. Fossils, beetles and things. I tell you, Bart, the moon was inhabited at one time. I've the evidence, and I want you to be the first to see it.' The eyes of the young scientist shone with excitement as he saw that his friend was roused to intense interest. "'So that's what all your experimenting had been aimed at? No wonder it cost so much. Yes, and you've been a brick for financing me.' Never asked a question, either. But, Bart, it'll all come back to you now. Know how much that stone's worth? Plenty, I guess. But forget about the financing and all that. Where's this laboratory of yours?' Madison had pushed his chair back from his desk and was reaching for his hat. "'Over in the Ramapo Mountains, not far from Tuxedo. I'll have you there in two hours. Sure you can spare the time to go out there now?' Venter was enthusiastically eager. "'Spare the time! You just try and keep me from going!' Neither of them noticed the sinister figure that lurked outside the door, which led into the adjoining office. They chattered excitedly as they passed into the outer hall and made for the elevator. Venter's laboratory was a small domed structure set in a clearing atop the mountain and well hidden from the winding road which was the only means of approach. Though Bart Madison, who had inherited his father's prosperous brokerage business, had financed his friend's research work ever since the two left college, this was his first visit to the secluded workshop, and its wealth of equipment was revealed to him as a complete surprise. He had always thought of Van's experiments as something beyond his ken, something uncanny and mysterious. Now he was convinced— The most prominent single piece of apparatus in the laboratory was a twelve-inch reflecting telescope, which reared its latticed framework to a slit in the dome overhead. Paralleling its axis and secured to the same equatorial mounting was a shining tube of copper which bristled with handwheels and levers and was connected by heavy insulated cables to an amazing array of electrical machinery that occupied an entire side of the single room. "'Regular young observatory you've got here, Van?' Bart commented, when he had taken all this in, in one sweeping glance of appraisal. "'Yeah, and then some. Not another like it in the world!' Van was busying himself with the controls of his electrical equipment, and a powerful motor-generator started up with a click and a whirr as he closed a starting switch. Madison watched in silence as the swift-fingered scientist fussed with the complicated adjustments of the apparatus, and then turned to the massive concrete pedestal on which his telescope was mounted. At his touch of a button the instrument swung over on its polar axis to a new position. The slit in the dome was open to the afternoon sky, revealing the lunar disk in its daytime faintness. "'You can see it just as well in daylight?' Bart asked as his friend peered through the eyepiece of the telescope and continued his adjustments. "'Sure. The surface is just as bright as at night.' Doesn't seem so to your eye, but is different through the telescope. Here, take a look. Bart squinted through the eyepiece and saw a huge crater with a shadowed spire in its center. Like a shell hole in soft earth it appeared, a great splash that had congealed immediately it was made. The crosshairs of the eyepiece were centered on a small circular shadow near its inner rim. That, Van was saying, is a prominent crater near the Mare Nubium. The spot under the crosshairs is that from which I have obtained the diamonds, and other things. Watch this now, Bart." The young broker straightened up and saw that his friend was removing the cover from a crystal bowl that was attached to the lower end of the copper tube, that pointed to the heavens at the same ascension and declination as the telescope. The air of the room vibrated to a strange energy when he closed a switch that lighted a dozen vacuum tubes in the apparatus that lined the wall you say you bring that stuff here with a light ray?" he asked. No, I said with the speed of light. This tube projects a ray of vibrations, like directional radio, you know, and this ray has a component that disintegrates the object it strikes and brings it back to us as dissociated protons and electrons, which are reassembled in the original form and structure in this crystal bowl. Watch! A misty brilliance filled the bowl's interior. Intangible, shadowy forms seemed to be taking shape within a swirling maze of ethereal light that hummed and crackled with astounding vigour. Then abruptly the apparatus was silent and the light gone, revealing an odd object that had taken form in the bowl. "'A starfish!' Bart gasped. "'Yeah, and fossilized!' Van handled it to him and he took it in his fingers gingerly, as if expecting it to burn them. The thing was undoubtedly a starfish, and of light, spongy stone. Its color was a pale blue, and the ambulacral suckers were clearly discernible on all five rays. "'Lord! You're sure this is from the moon?' Bart turned the starfish over in his hand and gazed stupidly at his friend. "'Certainly, you nut! Think I had it up my sleeve? But here, watch again, there's something else.' The crackling misty light again filled the bowl. "'Suppose,' Bart ventured, "'you bring in something large, big as a house, let's say. What would it do to your machine?' "'Can't. The rail only pick up stuff that'll enter the bowl. Look, here's the next arrival.' The mysterious light died down and the scientist picked up the second object with trembling fingers. It was a knife of beautiful workmanship fashioned from obsidian and obviously the work of human hands. "'There, didn't I tell you?' Van gloated. "'Guess that shows there were living beings on the moon!' He made minute changes in the adjustment of his marvellous instrument, and Bart watched in dazed astonishment as object after object materialized before their eyes. There were fragments of strange minerals, more fossils, marine life mostly a roughly beaten silver plate. Three diamonds, none of which was as large as what Van had taken to New York, but all of considerable value. This'll be something for the papers, Van. Bart Madison was visioning the fame that was to come to his friend. Yeah, all but the diamonds. All but the diamonds is right. These words were spoken by a sarcastic voice, chill as an icicle, that came from the open door. They wheeled to look into the muzzles of two automatic pistols that were trained on them by a stocky individual who faced them with a twisted, knowing grin. "'Danny Kelly!' Bart gasped, raising his hand slowly to the level of his shoulders. He knew the ex-army captain was a dead shot with a service pistol, and a desperate man since his disgrace and forced resignation. "'What's the big idea?' he demanded. "'You don't need to ask.' refused me a loan this morning, didn't you? Now I'm getting it this way." Kelly turned savagely on Van, prodding his ribs with a pistol. "'Get him up, you!' he snapped. Van had been slow in raising his hands, gaping in stupefied amazement at the intruder. Now he reached for the ceiling without delay. "'You'll serve time for this, Danny,' Bart shouted. "'Shut up! I know what I'm doing! And back up, too!' Where No, the other door!" Kelly was forcing them toward the door of the cellar at the point of one pistol as he kept Van covered with the other. Bart clenched his fist and brought it down in a sudden sweeping blow that raked Kelly's cheek and ear with stunning force. But the gunman recovered in a flash, dropped the muzzle of his pistol and pulled the trigger. Drilled through the thigh, Bart staggered through the open door and fell the length of the stairs into the darkness of the cellar. Kelly laughed evilly as he slammed the door and turned the key. "'Hold it, you!' he snarled as he swung on Van, who had dropped his hands and crouched for a spring. "'If I drill you, it won't be through the leg. I'll take those diamonds now.' He pocketed one of his pistols, and keeping the other pressed to the pit of Van's stomach, went through his pockets. Then he added those on the tray by the crystal bowl to the collection, and transferred the entire lot to his own pocket. Now, you clever engineer," he grinned, "'we'll just operate this trick-machine of yours for a while and collect some more. Hop to it!' He watched narrowly, as Van stretched his fingers to the controls. "'No monkey business either,' he grated, "'you'll not change a single adjustment. I've been listening to you and I know the clock of the telescope is keeping the ray trained on the same spot. You just operate the ray and nothing else. Get me?' Van did not think it expedient to tell him of the drift caused by inaccuracies in the clock and perturbations of the moon's motion. He was playing for time, trying to plan a course of action. "'There may not be any more diamonds,' he offered as he tripped the release of the ray. "'Oh, there'll be more! Don't try to kid me!' An irregular block of quartz materialized in the bowl and Kelly tossed it to the floor in savage disgust then a small diamond, very small, but he pocketed it nevertheless. The next object was a strange one, a dried sea-pod about six inches in length and of brilliant red colour. The ray had shifted to a new position on the lunar surface. Another and another of the strange legumes followed, one of them bursting open and scattering its contents, bright red like the enclosing pod to rattle over the floor like tiny glass beads. Kelly snorted his disgust. "'Still some sort of vegetation out there,' Van muttered. The eternal scientist in the man could not be downed by a mere hold-up. "'Cut the chatter!' Kelly snarled, as the crystal bowl gave up another of the useless pods, and still another. He gathered up the evidence of lunar vegetation, a half-dozen of the pods, and threw them through the open doorway with a savage gesture. "'You trying to put one over on me?' he bellowed. How can I? Van retorted mildly. I haven't touched a hand-wheel! He was wondering vaguely whether this lunar seed would grow in earthly soil. What sort of a plant it would produce under the new environment. Kelly was becoming nervous now. It seemed that little was to be gained by hanging around this crazy man's laboratory. He had a sizable fortune in rough stones already. The big one alone, when properly cut into smaller stones, would make him independent. Maybe there weren't any more anyway. And the longer he stayed, the greater chance there was of getting caught. The advent of another of the pods decided him. A quick blow with the butt of his pistol stretched Van on the floor and Kelly fled the scene. Bart was pounding furiously on the cellar door when Van first took hazy note of his surroundings. Several uncertain minutes passed before he was able to stagger across the room and release his friend. Where is he?" Bart demanded, swaying on his feet and blinking in the sudden light. Gone. Sock me and beat it with the diamonds. Van was mopping the blood from his eyes with a handkerchief. Are you hit bad? he inquired. No, just a flesh wound. Hurts like the devil, though. How about yourself? Bart limped to his side and sighed with relief when he examined his bleeding scalp. Not so bad yourself, old man. Where's your first aid kit?" Van was still somewhat dazed and merely pointed to the cabinet. "'Fine pair we turned out to be,' he grumbled, after his head had cleared a bit under Bart's vigorous cleansing of the cut on his temple. "'Here we stood, meek as a couple of lambs, and let that guy get away with murder. Yeah, but those forty-fives made the difference. Ouch!' Bart winced as his friend poured some fresh iodine over the wound in his leg. Have a heart, will you?" They were startled into silence by a hoarse, strangling scream that came from outside the laboratory. "'Help! Help!' someone repeated in a panicky voice, a voice which at once ended on a gurgled note of despair. "'It's Kelly,' Bart whispered. "'He's come back. Something's happened to him.' He started for the open door. "'Wait a minute. It may be a trick to get us outside, where he can pop us off.' No, it isn't. For God's sake, look!" Bart had reached the door and was pointing at the ground with shaking forefinger. The entire clearing seemed to be alive with wriggling things, long, rubbery tentacles that crawled along the ground, reaching curling ends high in the air and had even started climbing the trees at the edge of the clearing. Blood-red they were, and partially transparent in the light of the setting sun. Growing things, attached to their thick ends to swelling mounds of red that seemed anchored to the ground. Translucent stalks rose from the mounds and sprouted huge buds that burst and blossomed into flaming flowers a foot in diameter, then withered and went to seed in a moment of time. But always the weaving tendrils shot forth with lightning speed, reaching and feeling their uncanny way along the ground and over tree-stumps into the woods. One of them emerged from a hollow stump with its slender end coiled around the tiny body of a chattering gray squirrel. "'The moonflowers!' Van cried. "'What do you mean, moonflowers?' "'Dried seed-pods. They came over into the bowl, and Kelly threw them out. Now look at the damn things! They're alive!' Kelly's voice came to them once more from behind the barrier of rapidly growing vegetation. "'Help!' he screeched. I'll give back the diamonds, anything, only get me away from the things!" "'Ought to let him get him!' Van growled. Bart shivered. "'Too horrible, Van. Got an axe or anything?' "'There's a hatchet around back. Maybe we can—' But the young broker had scuttled around the corner of the building and Van looked after him anxiously. The vile red tendrils were reaching for the east wall of the laboratory and he saw that their inner surfaces were covered with tiny suckers, like those on the arms of a devilfish. Carnivorous plants, undoubtedly—these awful, half-animal, half-vegetable things—whose seed had been transported across a quarter million miles of space. Man-eaters! Deadly and growing with incredible speed. Even the short-lived flowers were fearsome, as they opened their scarlet pansy-like faces and stared a moment before they folded up and shriveled into the seed-cases, like those that had materialized in the crystal bowl. Then he noticed that the pods were opening and spreading more of the terrible seed. Nothing could stop this weird growth now. It would cover the country like a sea of flaming horror, overcoming and devouring every living thing cold fear clutched at Van as he realized the enormity of the calamity that had come to the earth. Bart was skirting the edge of the clearing with a hatchet in his hand, and Van tried to call out to him to warn him, but his voice caught in his throat and instead he ran to his assistance, circling the spreading menace to get around behind where Kelly was still shouting. Damn Kelly, anyway! This never would have happened if he hadn't come on the scene! Kelly was in the woods, wedged into the crotch of a tree and striking wildly at the clutching tendrils with his clubbed pistol. They mashed easily and dripping red, but were not to be deterred from their ghastly purpose. Kelly's time would have indeed been short had not his erstwhile victims come to the rescue. One of the thickest of the twining things encircled his body and had him pinned to the tree. His breath was coming in gasps as its tightening coils increased their pressure. His coarse features were livid and his eyes bulged from their sockets. Bart hacked and hacked at the rubbery growth until he had him free, jerked him from his perch, blubbering and whining like a schoolboy. His shirt had been torn from his breast, and they saw a great red welt where the blood had been drawn through the pores by those terrible suckers. "'Look out, Bart!' Van shouted. Another of the creeping things had come through the underbrush and was wrapping its coils around Bart's ankle. Another and another wriggled through, and soon they were battling for their own freedom. Kelly staggered off into the woods and went crashing down the hill, leaving them to take care of themselves as best they might. The stench of the viscous liquid that oozed from the injured tendrils was nauseous, it had something of a soporific effect, and the two friends found themselves fighting the terror in a growing mist of red that blinded and confused them. Then, miraculously, They were free, and Van assisted Bart as they ran through the forest. When they reached the road, weak and out of breath, they were just in time to see Kelly's roadster vanish around the bend. "'Yeah, he'd give back the diamonds—the swine!' Van muttered vindictively. Then shrugging his shoulders, "'Well, they won't be much good to him anyway. They won't be any good to us either, as far as that goes.' "'What do you mean? Aren't they real?' Bart was raising himself painfully into the seat of Van's car, his wounded leg suddenly very much in the way. Sure, they're real, but don't you realize what this thing means? This ungodly growth that started? Why, why no? You mean it'll keep on growing? And how? Those inner stalks drop a new batch of seeds every five minutes or so. Presto, a flock of new plants spring up ten feet from the first, dozens of them for every pod that drops. You know how geometrical progression works out. They'll cover the whole country—the whole world! Lord!" Man alive! This is terrible. I hadn't thought of that before. What'll we do? Yeah, that's the question. What can we do? Van started his motor and jerked the card to the road. First off, we're going to get away from here, fast. Bart gripped his arm as he shifted into second gear. Look, Van! he babbled, they're out of the woods already! Loose! The red snakes are loose from their stalks! They're alive, I tell you!" It was true. Several of the slimy red things were wriggling their way over the macadam like great earthworms, but moving with the speed of hurrying pedestrians. Free and untrammeled by the roots and stems of the mother plants, they had set forth on their own in the search for beings of flesh and blood to destroy. Millions of their kind would follow billions. In sudden panic, Van stepped on the gas. Fifteen minutes later, with shrieking siren, a motorcycle drew alongside and forced them to the curb. "'Where's the fire?' the sarcastic voice of a stern-visaged officer demanded when Van had brought his car to a screeching stop. Seventy-five the speedometer had read but a moment before. "'It's life and death, officer.' Van started to explain—'We must get to the proper officials to warn the—'Ah, tell it to the judge. Come on now, follow me.' "'But, officer, there's death on its way from the hills, I tell you. Red, creeping things that'll be here in a couple of hours. Get away from that wheel. I'll drive you in myself. You're full of Applejack.' Bart had opened the door on his side and was limping his way around the back of the car. This was serious. They had to get away had to spread the word in a way that would be believed before it was too late. The officer was tugging at Van's arm, astonishment and black rage showing in his weather-beaten countenance. Speeding, drunk, resisting an officer—they'd never get out of this mess! A swift uppercut interrupted the proceedings. Bart's leg was numb and stiff, but his good right arm was working smoothly and with all its old-time precision. His second punch was a haymaker— with his full weight behind it, it drove straight to the chin and stretched the officer on the concrete. Thoughtfully, Bart removed his pistol from its holster before scrambling in at Van's side. "'Boy, now we're in for it!' he gasped. "'And we might as well make a good job while we're at it!' Van let in his clutch with a jerk, and again they were breaking all traffic regulations. End of section 10